Who the bloody hell's that? Morning, Ange. Oh, Anthony. How are we? I'm really well. How are you? <laughs> Come on in. I will do. Thank you. Did that sound staged? Just a little. No, it's fine. fine. Yeah. I'm going to embrace the whole lounge pant thing next time. I'm going to put my University of New Hampshire lounge pants on. You should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello, Steve. Hello. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. Excellent. We are in. Are the... you well? I'm really well. Thank are you? Thank... Were, you were well last time. I uh, asked uh, yes, you. yes, yes. Last time we spoke, I was well, <laughs> and I'm well still. Thank you. Uh, we are. We are. This is episode the, one. The poison I put in your coffee hasn't I, kicked I know, in. No, it's yet, not kicked it? in yet. It's no, good. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it, it, give it's it time. Yes. It takes, takes a while. Um, we're we're. It's episode one of of the Steve Hogarth podcast, which hasn't got a name yet. It, we don't know if it's going to be the Steve Hogarth pod. Do we know that yet? No, we don't know yet. Okay. Well, we're, by the time you're hearing this, it will have a name. Yeah. But it hasn't yet. No. Right, okay. We call it Tales from the Green. Tales from the Green. <laughs> that would work, actually. That would, as we both glance out the window. Um, so, uh, yeah, so first episode, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about, um, and do, it, do, some, do some things from Steve's uh, diaries, possibly even starting at the beginning, um, and doing it in some kind of chronological, linear kind of order. Um, depending on if we can sustain ourselves for two volumes. Um, as Steve looks on sceptically. Um, but also that we might talk about some other things as well. And one of the things that I did want to talk about, um, because it was something I remember um, talking to you about a long time ago, um, was lyrics and was actually stories behind lyrics, specifically the story behind the lyrics for This Strange Engine. So uh, one of the things we might do today is just actually explore that, as we're finding our feet with this, explore that one a little bit, because that was a story that really piqued my interest and really caught my imagination when you told it. Um, and I don't know how many people will have actually heard heard you know the story behind that particular lyric, because obviously it's a, it's a big lyric and it's a, it is, it's yeah, a it, sprawling thing. It started life, I think it started life in... Um... In the middle of the night, I think I woke up with it all kicking off in my head, which sounds like like the perfect sort of romantic notion of 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 the creative um, muse coming to to a writer, and unfortunately, hardly ever happens to me. Um, McCartney wrote yesterday, but woke up with that, didn't he? And thought he dreamt it, and thought he nicked it. Um, I think Keith Richards did it as well. I think he had a tape, Keith Richards had a tape recorder by his bed, and he'd wake up and play the guitar and fall back asleep and not realise he'd done it. Right. I think, uh, That'll have been the heroine. That, yeah, no, it's it completely... <laughs> I don't think anybody's arguing it wasn't subset, sub, some, some, you know, sort of yeah. uh, exaggerated, but I think that's how he came up with um, Satisfaction Riff, I think. Right. Bam, 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 I think bam, that came bam. from that. Anyway. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, Creative Muse. Which was an acoustic guitar, apparently, put through it, the... Recording put of, of of a cassette machine that a he had, yep. yeah, that yep. that guitar sound and satisfaction. Yep. Yep. It wasn't even an electric guitar. He hated guitar. it. He hated that that riff. Did he hate yeah, it? Yeah, he hated it. In right. fact, the band hated it. It was just the people they were jumping up and down the controller the and producer. saying this is going to be massive, and yeah. and the band just didn't. They didn't think it was them. 
Right. Um, it's not funny. As it, as it goes on. But I think that was a middle of the night hmm. thing for... I think Gimme Shelter was as well. I think Gimme Shelter riff was as well. Well, this was the middle of the night. I woke up about four in the morning one summer's summer's night with all of this kicking off in my head. And I thought, oh, I, 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 I should write all this down. And I went downstairs, wrote it all out. You know, almost in the form that that you, that you would have heard it in the end. Um, I went back to bed hmm. and then got up again in the morning and thought, oh, oh I'll go and see what I wrote last yeah. night. And there, and there it was, you know, this boy who came into this world, hands of a holy woman in a holy place, all the way through to the bit at the end about bleeding to death. And it's all true, Um I was born in um, near to Kendall in Cumbria in a um, maternity hospital, which was called Help Chase, and it was run by nuns. So I was brought into the world um, the, by nuns, by 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 holy holy people, um, whilst my dad was away in the navy. Right. And uh, he always maintained that one of the most beautiful women he ever, ever saw in his life was was the nun that handed me over. Right. When he when he went to Helm Chase, when he'd come back uh, on leave, um, and I did walk a bulldog, and I did have a red coat, and it, there's a picture of me um, that some people might have seen walking Peter the bulldog by the by uh, by the river. In Kendall, um, and and so I spent the first few years of my life, from from birth to being a a toddler, in uh, in Kendall in the Lake District, while my dad was away um, working as a marine engineer in the Merchant Navy, and he had to complete a period of national service. So when he decided to come out of the Navy because he'd, he'd got to a point where he didn't like the idea of leaving my mother and I alone. Um, he moved us back to his hometown, which was Doncaster. There was no call for engineers much in, in Kendall. It was all agriculture. Um, and he had to go down the mine. Yeah. That was the alternative to being in the services. You could yeah. go down the pit. So he went down the mine and he worked down the coal mine at Brodsworth, I think, in uh, Doncaster. Um, and it wasn't until many years later, these were all just you know, th- things I knew when I was growing up, but, but it did, once I was grown up, um, it came home to me one day, what a sacrifice it must have been. Because he, he used to tell me stories about, I mean, it's all in the song about about watching the about watching the sunset on the equator and how quickly it used to go dark um, in the open ocean, um, and about banana spiders and about uh, drinking rum from coconuts in Montego Bay and the Panama Canal and flying fish. And so he filled my head full of these romantic visions uh, of a of a much bigger world, of, of the big wide world you know, from being a kid. And then moving to Doncaster, 
if anything, my world got smaller. We, we, we moved to a council estate. And so suddenly I'd gone from, you know, the Lake District and the hills and the, the lakes and the rivers to a pretty grim part of um, Doncaster, a place called Intake. Um, I mean, and I didn't feel it was grim, I don't think. It's just when you're a kid, you just get on with it, don't you? And you play out and... You do you do your thing. You kick a ball about, and and you make you make friends, and you you have fun. You'll have as much fun almost on a you know on a rubber sheep as you yeah. as you will on a yacht yeah. when you when you're when seven. You're yeah. um, but I think it did it did mean that 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 I'd got a lot of imagery in my head that I wasn't seeing walking down the street and. That fostered a feeling that at some point I would get out of there yeah. into the big world. Yeah. Um, so I, I had a wanderlust yeah. that I otherwise perhaps wouldn't have had. Yeah. That um, I don't know if I still have it. I suppose I do still have it. I've just been so many places now. Um, my idea of paradise is... is being in the garden, yeah. not going anywhere. Not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but I do have a much nicer garden Which the than the one I grew. You're going to be doing anyway. Than the one I grew up in, so uh, I can't. I can't complain. Um, yeah. So the first part of this strange engine starts with all of that, about the early life, father on the other side of the world, and then um, when I got to Doncaster. Um, when I was in junior school, this this guy called William Appleby appeared uh one day in the classroom and he used to work for the bbc he had a he had a program that used to be on the radio called singing together right. and all the schools used to broadcast that uh radio program in the classrooms and right. the idea was that there'd be little exercises in right. the in the radio program that right. the teachers could run with the yep. kids while it was happening and um Get all the kids singing. There'd yeah. be a different song each week and everything. So, so he 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 lived in Doncaster. He was a, he was a funny little chap. I mean, he lived with his mother. Right. Um, no alarm bells there then. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, they were different times. He he, he was very nice, um, but. Every now and again, if you were lucky, you got to go to his house, which sounds dodgy until I'll tell you that he had the most amazing train set. And <laughs> and this train set... So not dodgy at all, man. <laughs> this train set ran through holes in his walls. Oh, no, that is From impressive. one room to another. No, that's impressive. And then out and round the garden that's and impressive. back in. That's impressive. Uh, it was one hell of a train set. So, so, so people, you know... The, but anyway, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. He he turned up in our classroom one day, and he was handpicking uh, singers right. for a choir that he had, which was culled from all, all of the schools in the Doncaster area. And uh, he picked me and another and another kid. I think there's just two or three of us that were, were chosen from our school, and and uh, I was one of them. And we used to go and rehearse once a week at the uh, the girls' grammar school in uh, in town in Doncaster uh, at night after everybody had gone home. 
And so my recollections in, in TSC, you know, the smell of the wax on the wooden floor, the mixture of polish and soap, was was about about the girls' grammar school when we used to go there in the evenings and, and how spooky schools are when there's nobody in them. You know, all the empty lockers and the empty hooks for the coats. Um and Mr. Appleby would sit in the piano and the choir would the choir would sing. And at the end of the evening he would get out a box of Terry's all gold and we'd all get a chocolate. Oh. And so I used to go to William Appleby's choir and that part of this strange engine was was all about was all about recollections of the, the empty school and how it used to smell. Um and how it was weird to be in a school with no children in it, you know, to, to play with or to fear. Um, and then one day he stopped bringing the Terry's all gold in. Right. So I stopped going. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, bugger that. So I, I didn't I go any, I didn't go anymore. Um, so, <laughs> the beginning of the, you could see the beginning of my character forming as a mercenary Bastard, can't you? Uh, I Purple thought, oh, I'm aura. I'm going to go and sing for nothing. I've always been reluctant to sing for nothing. No. Um, so that, with those recollections, and ever since I was a boy, I never felt that I belonged. Well, that's all self-explanatory, really. I, I, I didn't really fit in. Um, Why do you feel you didn't fit in? Because that's I, not just from being from a different place, is it? Well, I think to some extent we all feel that. I right. think if we're all honest, we we, we all harbour in, inner anxieties when we're at school. We think that, that, that everybody else has got it all so sorted out yeah. and we're struggling. Yeah. And I think that I had that feeling, but, but now, I'm, now I'm old enough to see it for what it is. I, th- I think all the other kids had it too, but yeah. they were fronting it out like yeah. I was. Yeah. And I think that happens your whole life. Um, I think I still feel it whenever I go to a gathering of a lot of people, a lot of grown-ups, you know, whether it's a party or a, or a business event or what it is, I feel deeply uncomfortable yeah. walking into a room. And I always have this assumption that everybody else is entirely comfortable and I'm the weirdo. Yeah. But I think that's probably not true. I think maybe 99% of the people, apart from the psychopaths, <laughs> are probably feeling like I, I do. Yeah. It's the psychopaths that feel comforted, yeah. you know, because of the, they're psychopaths, you know. They end up running countries, usually. Um, so I, I, I never felt that I belonged. Um, and I did have, I don't know if, if that's peculiar, I think it's fairly common, is it, where... I had these occasional moments as a child where I wondered if I was the only person in the world. Yeah. And if all of it had, was an illusion. Yeah. That had been rolled out yeah. as an experiment. Yeah. To see what I'd do with it. Yeah. Because the way I saw it, the only person that I could be sure was actually real and alive was myself. It was yourself. And everybody else could be part of God's big massive theatrical production yeah. to see what I would do with it. bit Truman Show-esque or something like that, some kind of weird kind of thing going on. I, well, that was that was how I felt. Mm. Um, and I'm sure that's probably 
typical of a lot of people, certainly egoists. Um, so that part, the you know, find the fundamental truth. Time fifty-five summers down the line, or was it thirty-five? It's fifty-five now. The wisdom of each passing year seems to serve only to confuse that, that sense. That the more you learn, the more you realise how much you don't know. Yeah, and and and, and the, the, you know when you're in. I, I found that when I was in in my teens, I was much cockier and more yeah. self-assured than I am now because yeah. I, I thought I knew it all. Yeah. I knew nothing. And now I realise I know absolutely nothing. You know, and there's so there's so much to know and there's there's so much there's so much wisdom to attain. And then having attained that wisdom you've you've got to then live it as well. Because it's I think a lot of us know what we should and shouldn't be doing and what we should and shouldn't be thinking. And what we should and shouldn't be doing to ourselves, you know, we we know that we achieve nothing by beating ourselves up, and yet we do. Yeah. And we read our self-help books and our power of now and all yeah. of that, and they they're extremely enlightening. And then over time, we slip back into the into, same old, yeah. same old, same old. Um, so there's more to life than attaining wisdom. That there's there's also learning from it. And living what you learn from it, yeah. you know, and trying to get out of the habit of of all those insecurities that that, that you've, you know, that you you. I don't even know if if they're planted in in you by life or whether it's just natural. I mean, I think there are people who who've had difficult childhoods. Um, you know, and had had issues forever, ever after. But I think there are people who've had perfectly well-rounded lives, full of love, and and for the most part, I've had that. I've, I've never really wanted for love. I, I've, I've had a nice life, and yet I still have a lot of issues. Yeah. I don't even know where they come from. No, you know, but but I get a lot of it out in my writing. Yeah. Daddy came out of the Navy, took us away to Doncaster, you know, worked down the coal mine. Um, it's about, you know, the ship on the horizon, really. Where does it go after that? Well, we get we, we get a bit of guitar in the middle. We get, yeah. There's a bit the of guitar, guitar kicks in and, 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 and Mark goes a bit bonkers. Uh, on a keyboard part that I don't think he can ever play live, and then uh, sorry, Mark. Um, and then uh, I won't have that. <laughs> there was that time in Paris. <laughs> oh, I missed that one. <laughs> I, I was on coronavirus lockdown. I missed that one. Uh, <laughs> apologies to Mark. Um, oh, mummy, daddy, will you sit a while with me? That's the end, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Jog my memory and tall tales. Of Montego Bay, yeah, Table Mountain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, then you end up on a boat. Well, that all refers to having nearly lost my life on a boat, and and the fact that that the um, the fact my father had been a sailor and filled me with all these nautical notions as a kid. 
It was kind of interesting that I found myself at the age of about 21 on uh, on a cruise liner in the in the North Sea bleeding to death. Um, I was in a band called Harlow and we'd run into a guy called Vince Eager. Uh, and Vince Eager was a sort of contemporary of Billy Fury. He was a very early rock and roller. And at this point he was quite he was getting on. He was probably he was probably pushing fifty by then. I don't I don't know, maybe he was younger, but I was younger, so old people seemed older. Um and he he made us a proposition. He said he said, I'm 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 gonna I've got this show called A Tribute to Elvis Presley, ladies and gentlemen. And if you'll come and be my band, uh I've got this I've got this cruise that sails out of Felixstowe, goes to Gothenburg in, in Sweden and then to Amsterdam. Um, and you could be my backing band. And in return for that, I'll let you go on first and play your own music. So we said, all right, that sounds like an adventure. So we went and we got in our van and we, we, we went and we got on this boat. But none of us had ever quite fully realised that our bass player was a nutcase. Um you know, and and prone to 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 um, psychosis. Oh, that old story, <laughs> that old chestnut of an extremely violent nature. Um, and he was all right the first night, and then during the day it was very boring because you're just at sea with nothing to do during the day. And he got wired into um, Carlsberg Elephant beer, right. Um, which I'd never come across, but uh, it does seem to turn ordinary people into axe-wielding maniacs <laughs> if they have too many, and he had too many. And that 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 night we uh, we were on stage playing, and he was so drunk he could barely stand, let alone play the bass. And the the drummer was getting very frustrated with him because he was playing hardly playing at all and playing out of time. And, and he shouted something over to him, which, I mean, he called him a wanker. And that was it. I mean, that's not nice. But he reacted to it by attempting to murder the drummer, which is a bit of an overreaction. It's a overreaction. You know. And I don't mean punch him out. No. I mean do him. No. And it was like a, a switch had been switched inside him. And he wanted, he wanted to... Um, he wanted to... He wanted to murder this guy. And to this day, I don't really understand it. Um, but he was tr- he was trying to force the neck of his Fender bass into the head of the drummer um, while um, while we were still on stage. And so, so of course, everything, everything sort of fell apart. And this was before that kind of behaviour was fashionable yeah. on stage. This was long before yeah. punk. Um, so everything descended into chaos. Vince, who happened to be in the room and was a great big guy, he came in and sort of got a hold of him and took him outside to walk him around the deck. It was already, I don't know, 11 at night. We were in the middle of the North Sea. It was very cold out. So outside on the deck was just black, 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 you know, and the sea and the sound of the sea and the sound of the engines. He took him out onto the deck and the rest of the band went down into my cabin, which was very small, about four floors down. 
and we were just sitting talking and about half an hour later this this guy the space player came, came down and banged on the door and said I want to come in I said well I'm not letting him in here <laughs> and the guitar player went oh he look calm down he's probably come to say sorry I said well I hope you know what you're doing <laughs> anyway let him in and, and he, he came in with a pint glass smashed it on the side of the the cabin and launched himself across the room to try and try and cut the drummer's face off. That's not normal behaviour. Not calmed down then. Not calmed down. So me and the guitarist got hold of him, hustled him out of this cabin, and in the process he cut me across my right hand. I didn't know at the time, but he severed my right thumb tendon at the same time. And so then... Then I'm running up the cor- next hour. I'm running up the corridor of this. Uh, I mean, the the sight the sight of how much blood came out of me seemed to calm him down. Yeah. It seemed to be what he'd been after all along. And Didn't that, do you any favors. Then he was all right. You know, it was like job done. Yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> and um, so I'm running down the corridor, spraying blood across the ceiling, both walls, trying to hold my hand together. Mm-hmm. And by this time, it was two in the morning. There wasn't anybody anywhere. I'm running around this boat, which is just empty of all people, spraying blood everywhere, trying to find somebody. I eventually found a steward, uh, and he took one look at me, and he said, oh, come with me, and he took me up onto the bridge of the ship. So the next thing I knew, I was on the bridge of the ship, looking, looking out the windows at the, at the bow, and the black sea beyond it, and all the coloured lights of the control panels on the bridge, and they they wrapped my hand in a towel, which slowly became sodden and started dripping itself, at which point they'd take that away and wrap, wrap me in another one. Yeah. And they said, well, the, we don't have a doctor on the boat, um, but somebody's trying to get the first officer out of bed he's done a first aid course so i i, I was so the, this whole end section of this song is about being on the bridge of the ship staring out at the sea bleeding and feeling the the life slowly drain out of yourself you know i was becoming i was getting weaker and weaker and weaker and uh Resigning myself, to, it sounds dramatic, but I, I was resigning myself to my maker. Yeah. You know, I was thinking, well, there's a strange kind of, it's strangely apt, really, that I should die like this, you, you know, because the, the sea's always meant an awful lot to me. And, you know, I feel a bit at one with my dad. Um, anyway, the, the this... This officer, uh, this this blonde Scandinavian, I think he was Swedish, blonde, blonde officer appeared eventually. Um, as I was, you know, by the time I was, I was feeling proper faint by then. Um, and he said, he, 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 took, he, said he, he said, come with me. And, and he, he helped me down the stairs into another cabin. And there was a table. And he laid me out on a table. And another sailor knocked on the door and came in, and the, and the two of them stitched me up between, huh. b- between them. 
So I'm just lying on this table. Yeah, with your arm hand, yeah, Wincing, you know, because yeah. there wasn't any painkillers or anything, whilst these two sailors stitched my hand back together. And um, the next day, we docked in Amsterdam, and I went to a medical centre in Amsterdam. This uh, nurse tended to me. Yeah. Um, and she unwrapped the bandages and looked at... Looked <laughs> at what they'd done. Looked at what they'd done. Said, this is a dreadful mess. Who's done this? And I said, well, a couple of sailors. <laughs> so she said, well, there's blood under these stitches. That's going to have to come out for a start. And she just dug both of her thumbs into this wound and pressed. And I went up in the air. And I was like, oh, somebody set fire to my arm. <laughs> and fainted. Um and when I came round, she, I mean, it was so painful. Um, when I came round, she'd, she, it was all, you know, it was all dressed and covered in bandages again. So then we got back on the boat and we had to play that night. So then we're all back on stage <laughs> with Vince. I've got my arm in a sling. I'm playing the piano in my left hand. And we're all looking at his bass player. Going, player. Oh my God, is it safe? You know, is he, has he finished? Or, uh, uh, you know, waiting for this nut job. And then when we finally got back to England, he was the only one who could drive the van. So, so we all had to sit in a transit van with him, you know, shoulder <laughs> to shoulder, thinking, you know, when he's there, when he's cloud over when we, you know, like that, like that dog that I just uploaded as my. Uh, <laughs> it's my picture. It's my picture, Instagram out, yeah. <laughs> he was like that, <laughs> driving a van, and we're all. And it's a long way from Felix to Doncaster, and it's a bloody long way when you think you're in a van with a murderer. Yeah. Um, so we just sat in this van, all, 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 all four, four, four of us, just thinking, make this end, for God's sake, make this end. We finally got to Doncaster, and. Um, you know, we I think we got the band unloaded, and then following day we said we better have a band meeting, and we fired him, and that was the end of it. Well, I mean, we should have taken him to court, really. But I mean, I can understand how I can relate to rape victims who don't prosecute because because rape is an awful thing to happen to you, and this was an awful thing that happened to me, and I couldn't face going, going to court. No. To, to prosecute him for what he'd done. Yeah. I just couldn't fight. I'd rather just forget all about it and let it, and let it go, you yeah. know, and leave it down to karma. And I'm, I'm sure that's how a great a great many people who've, who've been violated in whatever way feel. Must, must feel. Yeah, it's so traumatic to face, uh, you know, to look someone in the face when they've, when they've, when they've abused you. Something like that. Well, particularly yeah. when it turns out how much your hands have meant to your career. Well, yeah, I was, I was very, very serious about being a piano player and wanting to be a rock and roll star at that point in my life, although I was never going to go on boat in the first place. Um, so to be to 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 then be told once I got back to Doncaster, still didn't know that my thumb didn't work at that point. I went to the doctor. And said this happened, yeah. and he sent me straight up to the hospital. Yeah. I eventually saw a specialist, and he said, "Well, I've got some bad news for you. You know, you you severed your thumb tendon, and it won't work anymore. Um, we we can operate, but there's no guarantee we'll get yeah. it going again." 
Um, so that was pretty depressing, you know, to hear as, as, a, as someone who... I never imagined at that point that I could just be a singer. Yeah. It hadn't occurred to me. Yeah. Um, I always Im- thought I would need to play, to something. play something. And I'd, you know, so I'd learned to play the piano. And so it was dreadful. It took me two years before I could I could twiddle my thumb. Yeah. It did take two years of physio. Yeah. So that whole end section about staring at the sea and bleeding is um is is from is from that incident but it's also a metaphor for um i mean i think when i wrote tse i was i was going through a lot of things was feeling a lot of guilt um so it was almost a metaphor for the the state mind the state my head was in and an attempt to ask forgiveness you know and to insist that i was a i was a uh i was an honest man yeah um so that that whole bleeding and bleeding and you know and also the frustration of of failing you know and tries and fails and tries again. Um, it, it, it's all about uh, you know ambition, and 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 how how many times you do you do have to fail to get anywhere. Yeah. Is does that because then you know a number of albums later you um, wrote failure isn't falling down failure is staying down is that, were you in a different place when you wrote that then because those those two lyrics seem to suggest some positive movement yeah well that 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 um that song rich yeah get rich right now that that song actually came from a whole load of quotes i right. nick i nicked, nicked nearly all, all of those right. lines they were all from they were all quotes from different you know, film actresses and, yeah. and various celebs over the years. Uh, you know, um, it's probably a Twitter account now. You could probably I mean, just go onto a Twitter account and re and literally write down. And I a, loved them. You know, reality is something you rise above. Yeah, that was great. We don't see things as they are; we see them as we are. That's just brilliant, and it's right. absolutely true. Um, so there isn't a deep story linking those two lyrics. You nick the second one. Yeah, but yeah the, the, I just nicked. I just nicked all of it. Right. Um, Not that I wanted to dwell on that. I just, I just thought the question when I heard you say what you said about failure. Yeah. Um, there was the other thing that came out of that. Then that. Um, so did, did did that explain the little bits of bandage on your fingers? So when I first yeah. saw you, and for the first few years in the band, you had, you had. Yeah, I used to wear little. Little bandages on my fingers uh, when I was in the Europeans um, for that very reason. They were a, a sort of wry, tongue-in-cheek yeah. um, nod at, at, at having, be, having been in bandage for so long. My, my hand's been bandaged up. Um, and I just thought it was a vibe. And, and then... I got to the point where it became a superstition. Yeah. Where if I hadn't got the bandages on, I didn't think I'd have a good gig. Yeah. Um, 
and then when I when I met the boys and John Marillion, they'd seen some they'd seen some video footage of of the Europeans playing somewhere. I think, and a couple of them said, "What's the deal with those bandages on your fingers? They're quite cool, aren't they?" Yeah. So. So I, what with them thinking they were cool, I thought I'd, I'd, I Better thought I'd wear it. them, yeah, and um, just to put people on the back foot, really, and think, well, what's that all about? Yeah. You know, I think it's good to do that. Because that was the first few years, wasn't it? That first few years in the band, you were doing that. First couple of albums, you were doing that. Yeah, it, it was it was my thing, and it was a bit of a superstition thing. And then, you know. One day I just thought, oh, I can't be asked doing this. <laughs> I think we all get to that age, don't we? we? I mean, I've worn less and less jewellery as I've got older. I just can't be asked putting it on now. <laughs> it's, it's funny, you know, because when you go over that story, and I do love that story, I think it's a, I think, I think the story behind that lyric is really, is really fascinating, particularly the amount of absolute detail. Um, but the thing that chimed with this with me today that I'd not thought of in the past is that I was with a friend the other day, and he just followed me on Facebook or something, and and it popped up that we had um, somebody in common. We had a we had a friend in common, um, and that friend in common turned out to be um, a guy I've known for for years called called Simon. Who he said, "Oh yeah, I know him. He's Vince Eager's boy." <laughs> so that there's a kind of a round, roundabout little link. The, the, now I don't know if that's true or not, and I can't I can't quantify. But I've no reason to believe that it won't be because the guy that I was talking to was has always known that kind of era of people, and and for a while was in that kind of he was a roadie for paper lace of all people. That sounds about right because it was it was all that sort of working men's club yeah club kind of area of 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 music that that. that you know that that we were part of that way back then, um, so that sounds completely credible. If it wasn't for Vince, I wouldn't have the end of this strange engine. I wouldn't have a big scar on my right hand. Um. <laughs> so, so, chin up to Vince Egan. <laughs> I'm allowed to say it. Lucy can't stop me. Chin up. Oh, shall, we, shall we shall we break for a brew? Yeah, let's have a break for a yeah, brew come and on. come back with something. Maybe something from the diary. Okie dokie. just back from our brew uh, and a very nice brew it was too so you're going to start at the beginning then yeah i thought i might as well start right the right at the very beginning with with volume one 1991 to 97 and i noticed there's an introduction it says back in 1992 i went back to doncaster to visit my mum and dad what have you been up to then son my dad said i've been on top of a mountain on a glacier in iceland dad i was dropped from a helicopter my dad thought for a minute before replying. Would you make me a promise? Sure, I said. Would you begin to keep a diary? What's happening in your life doesn't normally happen to people. And so I did. And then I said, this isn't a sex, drugs and rock and roll tabloid rock star tells all book. This diary is about what it's like to be a famous, whatever that is, touring musician travelling the world. It's also about how it is to go home, do the garden and plumb in the dishwasher before popping into London to rub shoulders with Princess Stephanie and Monaco. 
It's about having a bath with the kids and having lunch with Neil Armstrong, although he's actually in volume two. I didn't write a diary every day. Sometimes I was too busy, too bored, or in no frame of mind to write anything. Some years are almost ignored or totally absent, probably because I was holed up on a farm or in a castle writing an album and didn't have the brain space to think about anything else. Some days are detailed moment-by-moment chronicles, while others are sketchy. Some start with detail and then remain unfinished, probably because I was called away on some errand or other, a gig, or having to get in a car and drive somewhere else, or sleeping. Some days, of course, weren't worth remembering, and some are best forgotten. This diary is simply whatever I manage to write on certain days. It also occasionally reminisces. I apologise if I repeat myself in these pages. Often I'm recalling the same things from the vantage point of entirely different years, so it's only natural that a town or a gig will remind me of the same things each time I'm there. Also, there's a tendency for me to switch from the past tense to the present tense, from one sentence to another. This is often because I'm arriving in the present as I write. 1991, Tuesday the 13th of August, Iceland, shooting the dryland promotion video. Flew to Reykjavik in the evening. During the flight, I witnessed a treat. We were just above the cloud, which appeared from my window as a dark purple feather bed. The sun had set, and above the cloud the sky was crimson, fading to pink. On the cloud horizon, a perfect crescent moon shone silver, but exactly half submerged in the cloud floor, so that it appeared as a shining silver shark fin, emerging from a purple sea into an unworldly sunset sky. For the first of many times during my stay in Iceland, I cursed not having brought my camera. In Reykjavik, I was met by a car and I eventually arrived at the hotel to find Howard Greenhall, the director, with a scalded foot. He'd wandered into one of the volcanic steam pools earlier today while looking down a camera lens for interesting shots of the the gazer. Producer assistant Megan was nursing a cold, so they made a pretty miserable pair and the response to my enthusiastic appearance was somewhat low-key. left them to it and spent the evening in my room, back to the gazer in the morning to start filming with a helicopter. Wednesday, 14th of August. Spent nearly all day in a cafe with a model. Locally hired Icelandic Norse goddess Hrun, probably aged 17 and bunking off school, waiting for Howard and a helicopter which was not to arrive owing to technical fault. Drank 14 gallons of coffee and made several interesting attempts to order flowers for Sue in England by Icelandic payphone. It's my wedding anniversary on the 16th and of course I'll still be in Iceland. I should probably point out that this was pre-mobile phone so if you wanted to phone England and do anything it was either a hotel phone for 70 quid a minute or it was a payphone. And payphones in Iceland were extremely interesting to operate and I didn't have any of the right money. Howard showed up at 5.30 in the afternoon extremely vexed. Never mind. Stood about looking heroic. It's what he likes me to do. With the 30-foot gazer exploding periodically into violent orgasm behind me. Then onto the waterfalls for more of the same. When the light failed... 
We drove for hours and hours along a badly potholed road to somewhere very remote where we stayed in a kind of hostel in order to get to the Iceberg Lagoon at first light tomorrow. I occasionally encountered other hotel hostel residents done up in thermal outward bound gear, Gore-Tex boots, rucksacks, etc. It's all anathema to me. I'm not one for the pleasures of a forced ten gale 500 miles from the nearest cafe. In the unlikely event that anyone could ever persuade me to go on a skiing holiday, I'm sure I'd never leave the bar. Thursday, 15th of August. Jokulsorlen Iceberg Lagoon. Spent most of the day shooting at the Iceberg Lagoon. I was surprised how bluey white the icebergs are. They really seem to shine with a colour all their own, like there's light inside them. I'm told that no one can be sure whether the ice below the water is losing weight or gaining weight, and so the entire things may turn upside down at any moment, as the ratio changes with thaw and freeze. For this reason it was decided not to film <laughs> film me on top of one. We hired a little boat and sailed around the lagoon. It's unwise to get too close to the icebergs. These are only little ones, but they are nonetheless as big as houses, and if they capsize, you wouldn't want to witness the splash at close quarters. I wrote some postcards. We finished shooting and drove for hours to Bick, pronounced Vic, where we were to stay at another sort of hostel-stroke guesthouse thing. Interestingly, my friend Pep, pronounced Pep, lives in the mountains near Barcelona in a village called Vic, pronounced Bick. What are the chances? Anyway, meanwhile in Bick, pronounced Vic, we ate with the landlady who gave us haddock, which was washed down with Beck's beer and Glenfiddich malt whiskey. Howard wants it noted in my diary that he can't juggle either. Friday, 16th of August, Blue Lagoon, Reykjavik. Woke up to rain and grey skies. Not great for movie makers. It brightened up later amidst much debate as to whether or not I, I am in possession, as I claim to be, of a weather angel. Shot walking on a black beach washed by white foam, like a negative. We then returned by road to Reykjavik and beyond to the Blue Lagoon, a natural volcanically heated swimming pool where the Icelanders may bathe warmly out in the open air at any time of year or day. There's a fence around the lagoon, and a little ticket office with a turnstile that you have to go through to gain admission, complete with changing rooms like any public swimming pool in England. Shot a lip-sync playback of me standing on a rock singing dry land with bathing onlookers just out of shot. I alighted from a small rowing boat in long black coat and sunglasses before trying to look serious and mimed to the playback tape while middle-aged ladies in swimsuits pointed and giggled. I don't blame them. Howard, I'm not comfortable, I complained as they continued to chuckle. Gave up after the light worsened and returned to our hotel in Reykjavik to freshen up for a Friday night out. Socially speaking, Iceland's a small place and you can't turn up with movie-making equipment for very long before everyone who's anyone knows you're in town. Howard's office in London had received a fax mysteriously inviting us to the birthday party of Doris Day and Night, an Icelandic socialite, at some nightclub in town. 
When we arrived, I was greeted at the door by her. Dora, for short, a sort of middle-aged Icelandic media catalyst who was throwing a fancy dress bash, including sit-down meal for Iceland's colourful and beautiful. I was seated next to a hairdresser who said he'd flown in from Europe for the event. Dora's obviously popular, and I can say she was certainly an excellent host. Met Björk, lead singer of the Sugar Cubes, who was pleasant and eccentric. You have to care, were her passionate opening words of our short conversation. Me, of all people. I care. I care, I said. Anyway, I cared enough to buy her a drink, and she cared enough to drink it. She didn't care enough to buy me one back, though. It was a good party. I'm sure I would have had a great time if I'd known anyone. Half of those present were in fancy dress. Someone had come as a television. I ended up losing Howard and eventually found myself out in the street around 5.30am, trying to get back to our hotel. Reykjavik at five in the morning is like Covent Garden at two in the afternoon. There were people everywhere. It was broad daylight and the cafes and even some of the shops were open. There was a 30 metre queue for taxis, which I joined alone amidst the boisterous, drunken, still uncomfortably Viking crowd. It was cold and I hadn't come out dressed for standing around outdoors. I stood there shivering nervously, an English wimp surrounded by hardy and hard-drinking Icelanders, wondering what the taxi driver would do when he realised I hadn't enough money to cover the cost of the journey. I should know better by now. It's it's interesting um, watching you read the diaries... Uh, it's the first time I've seen you do that close up. I've seen you do it on, on, on a natural show, but I've not seen you do it close up. It's interesting watching that because of your facial expressions and, and the memories it brings back when you're <laughs> watching you chuckle right. to yourself about <laughs> moments like falling out of a party at you know 5.30 in the morning, whatever it might be, and the memories that brings back. It's a really nice. It's really nice. I mean, you can hear it in your voice as well, but it's a real nice moment when you see it kind of written across your face, really. Right. Um, was it... a yeah, I mean, you said at the beginning of the intro about your, you know, your dad saying to write these things down. Um, was it was it hard to do? Was it not hard, but really time consuming, um, especially on tour, um, because I don't get that much time to myself on tour, or I certainly didn't used to. I mean, I maybe roll out of bed at midday, yeah, and then. You know, have breakfast and faff about. You end up faffing about in gigs. Things, yeah. things, things that normally take ten minutes tend to take an hour and a half on tour. Really simple things like getting a shower or um, just gets complicated. And, you know, having a bit of breakfast sometimes means walking half a mile. Yeah. Um, so you end, and then you're into sound check at four o'clock, and then then I well, I usually go to bed after sound check. And have an hour's kit before the show. I know I've got into that over the years. That's that's been my touring life. I would always sleep, um, and I could go out like a light, you know, at six in the evening, be- because something in my head says you've got a show later. You need yeah. to sleep, and I w- and I will just sleep. So during the day, 
I believe it or not, I don't have that much time. And what used to happen is I would then spend that one sacred hour to myself mm. writing the diary, mm. which then became a chore. Mm. And I used to feel like I never stopped, mm. you know, when I was on the road. So I'd either be traveling or I'd be sound checking or I'd be gigging or yeah. I'd be writing this diary yeah. and it just never ended. Yeah. Um, so I quite enjoyed it. But it did become a bit of a chore, yeah. and, and if had it not been the fact that I promised my father, oh. promised my father I would do it, yeah, you probably would have. I, I, it probably would have tailed off. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, it's, it's certainly really interesting watching you, uh, watching you go through it, and watching you read it. Um, we're about there for episode episode one, uh, and it's been a pleasure to sit down and have an atta. Um, we'll um, obviously, if you've enjoyed it. Please tell friends about it. Please share it. Uh, please like it. Please review it. Please do all the normal things because uh, it it helps other people find the, the you know the podcast, which is which is great. We're gonna be uh, we're gonna be we're gonna be back with more episodes um, shortly, and we're still kind of working out how this thing's gonna work. Um, uh, and but we'd love to hear from you. So uh, you you know if you can find ways of getting in touch, and we'll put some links to how you can get in touch with the podcast. Um, then, then please let us know what you think. Uh, and I guess in the meantime, it's till we till we get together again. Yeah, look forward to hearing from you all. Yeah, you take care. Send some feedback. Not too much abuse. Be no, nice. No, no, that's from the purple aura. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production.